0: The Anesthesia Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this live broadcast, which is all about the uh, new updated meta-analysis of mortality in patients admitted to intensive care with COVID-19 from Richard Armstrong and colleagues. Their main finding was that any fall in mortality rate between June and September appears to have flattened or plateaued. Today we'll be delighted to be joined by our authors, uh, Richard and Tim, along with guests Rupert, Mandeep, Danny, and Zudin. So hi, everyone, and thank you very much for coming to join us. I'll start with a question for Richard. Why did you do this systematic review to update the previous one? Uh, why, why was an update required at this time?
1: Uh, thanks for that, Mike, and thanks for having us on to talk about the paper and to everyone else for joining. Um, the The initial meta-analysis that we did included studies up until the end of May really. So it really included those earliest reports of the pandemic sort of as they were coming out. Um, And in total, that had around 10,000 patients in. And one of the main findings from that was that it it did look like the mortality had reduced in the kind of five to six months that that review covered. So we wanted to update the meta-analysis, firstly, to see if that reduction in mortality was a sustained finding. But then also because, as, as we've all seen, the volume of literature coming out about the pandemic continues to increase, you know, hundreds of results a day. So we knew there would be new reports out there. Um, the, initial, the initial meta-analysis only reported from a few geographical regions as well. So we were keen to capture a wider global spread. And we knew that we knew that more regions had been reporting over time. So we felt that with such a dynamic situation that had progressed since the last publication, we thought it was worthwhile to update it and see how things had changed or progressed.
0: And then, I mean, that previous version of
1: this paper – here
0: this morning has an altmetric score of over 1500 which is incredible so it's received a lot of attention and i think it's really important um that as the data continues to come in that's been updated and i just ask a question for um for anyone on the panel really whether or not they have any explanations um to um for why this reduction in mortality over time has, has was seen and, and why it's become less pronounced uh, later on in the pandemic um, so I'll open that up to any anyone on the panel. Uh, maybe uh, maybe uh, Rupert.
2: I was trying to let someone else have a crack at the uh, tricky ones. I mean, I think it, it it it's. I mean, first of all, fantastic work, Richard, Tim, and colleagues. Uh, it, it's an amazing paper. Uh, the the thing I always look at in any kind of epidemiological studies is case mix. Um, but the most important thing to contextualise what you've found. We certainly know in the UK that there's been a change in case mix between the first wave and the second wave. We know there's different patterns of ethnicity, there's different patterns of uh, comorbid disease to some extent, and this different patterns of social deprivation, and For anybody who needs to come into ICU, we all know as ICU doctors that those are powerful determinants of their chance of survival. So I think probably the biggest challenge with this kind of work, which has to be done, because we have to know what's happening. We have to understand how we're getting on in terms of how effectively we treat COVID. But the the biggest problem that, that Richards has had is Contextualizing those data in terms of the case mix. So, personally, I've been really, really cautious about any interpretation about whether mortality is getting higher or mortality is getting lower. And we've seen some quite prominent statements and suggestions of, of, of both of those suggestions that the virus is getting more pathogenic uh, and that maybe more people are dying, or alternatively, that we're getting better at treating patients in ICU and fewer people are dying. I think either claim still relies heavily on risk adjustment that we're not able to do yet until we've got the patient-level data, which um, Richard and Tim highlight as a problem in their
0: paper. Uh, any comments on that from anyone else on the panel?
3: Can I just Can I just come back on that? I, I, I largely agree with, with everything Rupert it says, as a sort of general statement, um, but specifically to what he said there. Um, I think... Um, the first measure analysis, which, which took things up to June, I think there was a very clear um, decrease in mortality over time that, that correlated with the time of publication. We weren't able to get um, individualised time of patient entry into studies. Um, and and I think it's we, we shouldn't forget that we do seem to have made inroads into this disease um, in terms of its management. Very early on, uh, there were probably deviations from, from normal ITU care and a reversion to uh, appropriate use of, oxy- of oxygen, uh, appropriate intubation uh, or intubation timing strategies, probably better management of fluids, um, not uh, avoiding hyperoxia um, on the wards and before patients came to us, um, uh, enhanced anticoagulation, use of prone ventilation. So I think we shouldn't forget when we go back to March and then through to June, probably what significant changes there have been, a lot of it um, uh, created by um, very early thinking about what was happening and dissemination of of information, both within the UK but also from elsewhere. Um, And and I'm I'm taken, I'm taken, I I believe, the fall in mortality that there was across that board, from the very high early reports, where the completed ITU um, uh, episodes, in some papers, the mortality was as high as 80%, 80%, 60%, but coming down to the 30s and 40s, and even the 20s in publications in May. And I think one of the other complexities is, of course, which Rupert alluded to, is case mix and how the surges... Um, particularly when when systems are overwhelmed, how that probably changes our ability to look after people well, Um, and it probably subtly changes actually who we're looking after. And we might talk about that later, but there is is some evidence even within the UK of a variation in in case mix and probably um, who gets into ITU. Um, at, at, at times of peak surge, and not, not within this paper, but but from elsewhere. We might come back to that. But, but in, in, in this iteration of the meta analysis, we've seen sort of, a, sort of a J shape. So there's a curve down, and then it, and it sort of settles at the bottom. And there seems to be either a, a reduction in that rate of improvement um, and, or a flattening off completely. Um, and it's, it's difficult because we all work in the UK. Um, but we're but we're
0: actually looking at the papers from around the world, so it's, a, it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and that point about papers from around the world is is one of the really other fascinating. I mean, there's many things in this paper, but uh, to pick out and and one was that the dose of a completed ICU stay, uh, mortality is around thirty five percent, but higher in the Middle East and lower in Australasia, uh, albeit there was only one study in Austro- Aust- Australasia to, to make that finding from. So I'm just wondering if anyone has got any ideas about. Why that might be, and why these um, variations around the globe uh, are are there, and why they're important.
4: So, so Michael, I guess what you know, I think is Rupert alluded to earlier on: there's only so much level, uh, sort of ICU level discussion we can have right now, uh, and we can go round and round the houses asking, "Why mortality has changed?" and be cautious about saying that. Richard, can I just ask you? So, one of the questions we think I think what we can where this paper could go is looking at inter-country differences. So, um, Richard, I was wondering if you, because you, you, can I just did you did correct for GDP? Is that right in one of your meta-analyses? Uh, and for age, which also which is one of those sort of stark differences between countries, is that
1: right, Richard? Mm, so, so as has been alluded to, we were restricted in terms of what we could adjust for and how much we could take things like case mix and context into consideration, we tried to do what we could, but we've anything we've then said, we've kind of couched with the limitations that that comes with. So we did do some analyses adjusting for um, not just the country itself, but as you say, the income band of that country. Then we included the patient demographics and clinical details where they were reported. The reporting of those was very variable. And not standardized at all. So we only actually ended up being able to include, as you've said, age and the sex of the patients. And then the only consistently reported factor in terms of the clinical care, which we've had to use as a proxy really for the case mix, is the proportion of ventilated patients, which is obviously a poor proxy, as we've discussed for the for the case mix. So We were keen to bring together what we could in terms of a a global picture, looking at reports from different countries, and we still think there was value in presenting that, but as we're all alluding to now, this is not a definitive global comparison, fully case mix adjusted by any means. Um,
4: Yes, you could. Argue that there are huge amounts of values on looking and in, in the global fashion, like you have. So, looking, I'm just looking at your figure four, your funnel plot, because the thing about that really strikes me is actually probably. I wonder if your next analysis, if you were doing any more analyses, were to look at ICU bed capacities in those countries, uh, to look at number of COVID cases in that in those countries, because actually you could. Usually say yes. Australia's down there, but it also has the greatest capacity. Australia and Germany have great, of the greatest ICU capacities, I remember correctly uh, internationally. And Australia also has one of the lowest cases of COVID, COVID numbers. So actually, that could explain a lot of this. So that might perhaps be a follow-on analysis,
0: yeah. well, or might yeah.
4: understand in, intra, inter ICU treatment, which we can't. That,
1: that is, that is something that we discussed when we set out on the analysis. Um, but one of the issues we found with that, which we mentioned in the paper, is that potentially it, it's actually difficult to get an up to date figure of what the intensive care provision, for example, per capita actually is. Because, in, you know, taking our UK practice as an example, that's changed massively over the course of the pandemic. And do you base it on sort of baseline capacity? Do you base it on peak capacity? Ideally, you would base it on capacity longitudinally alongside the the admissions. But unfortunately, uh, with what we've got at the moment, we're not able to to do that level of sophistication. But certainly, those are factors which we would have liked to look at, and, and I'm sure will have made some contribution. Any
0: more questions about those sort of regional differences? Danny, you look like you want to come in.
5: Yeah, I was just wanting to say I think this has been a really interesting paper to read, so thank you. It, it's also interesting that we're focusing on on Aus- Australasia or other sort of major, major countries that we consider to be comparable to us. But I was sort of thinking of this, that it hasn't been a stable situation all year, that COVID waves have hit different countries at different times of the year, depending on their season. And I was sort of focusing on your data on the... the the countries that had registries. And the really interesting one for me was the Netherlands, because it's very much like us in some respects. It had similar degree of ICU bed provision before we went into this pandemic. Um, It appears to have done a bit better in your registry in terms of of survival. Um, It's got a population that's twice as dense as our population. So some of the arguments about why we've done so poorly as a country around survival um, from COVID don't seem to... To fit when you look at comparative European countries like the Netherlands. So for me, looking at this, I was thinking, I can sort of think in my head and rationalise why Germany might have done better, but I can't rationalise where somewhere like the Netherlands, that should be very similar to us, appears to have done better. So I think it's fascinating.
2: Can I point something out that um, Andy Rhodes did uh, quite a few years ago when he was president of the European Society of Intensive Care? He tried to assess and evaluate and, and sort of compare. ICU provision across Europe, and, and it became almost impossible because the definition of intensive care varied so widely. And I think it's really interesting that Danny has highlighted that the Netherlands and the UK are reasonably comparable. I know that the UK definition of intensive care, which quite strictly adheres to that one trained nurse for ICU bed, in, in Germany, that's much more diluted as a standard of care pre-pandemic. And I understand from somebody they even legislated to prevent it getting any lower because they felt it was a problem. Um, And actually, if you look more widely across Europe to to the, the different sorts of countries, you can find that there are some countries even at that time that were describing certain types of psychiatric unit as intensive care. And it became very, very difficult to say what an ICU bed was. I really like the UK grading of 0123 to talk about uh, um, a ventilated bed at level three, a high dependency bed at level two, and so on. But that's not used outside the UK, and international audiences are very unfamiliar with that grading. And I think that's always going to be a challenge in, in trying to make sense of that. But more interestingly, still, even within the UK, that grading has been completely distorted as we've all diluted our skill mixes within our units to varying degrees. Uh, in my unit it's quite regularly at one to four at the moment. But in other units in neighbouring hospitals in London it's it's not as bad. Um, I suspect in some places like the Midlands and, and around Leeds and so on it is very dilute as as well. But maybe down where Tim is it's not so bad, at least I hope so. So, I think all of these things then become very challenging. Um, I wonder if Richard and Tim will ever be able to get to the bottom of that. I think that would take a lot of work, but it would be
3: interesting to know.
2: Mm.
3: If I can, I'm going to remember, it's not what I was going to say, but I'm going to say something different. And I think it's an important thing. So, I I think when you've been involved in a paper, um, I think it's very easy to see all the limitations on it. And I see huge limitations. Uh, to this to this paper i think uh, rich and the team have done great work but i see lots of limitations and one of the limitations is that we is is that we've is we've thrown into a sort of a melting pot all sorts of uh different countries uh, information from completely different systems and we don't we can't standardize or adjust case based adjustments we've needed to and and that's um a, a limitation in itself and then on top of that there's there's statistical heterogeneity um, within all the data which means arguably you can, you can say that we shouldn't have meta-analysed the data and we shouldn't be comparing but, and it's at its very worst we're summarizing the ITU data and bringing it together bringing together a large number of papers and, and saying look what does this show and I think that in itself is really important and, and if, if 2020 has shown anything it's that it, it's the what's happening in Wuhan on the other side, of the, in China, in Manaus, in, in um, Brazil, or Joburg in South Africa, is, is, is actually important to us in the UK. So the way healthcare systems are working and what's happening in terms of disease in, in, in across the globe is important to us all the time, not just um, ethically and in, broad, in the broader sense, but actually um, in terms of, uh, and not just in terms of global healthcare and equity, but also in terms of of our health and and global health security. So I I think even if, with its limitations, this paper is just bringing information from different areas of the globe, then I think um, it and and similar papers, and I don't think there are many that have done done this, um, I think it has some value um, in that context and and to, to spark discussions such as this.
0: Andy?
6: Um I totally agree with you, Tim. I think, you know, um that's my take-home message from this paper, really, is that it's um it's the best that we can it's the conclusions that we can draw from the data from around the world that we've got at the moment. Um and of course we need to look at what the inclusion criteria know for all of these studies were um what kind what what the definitions of icu were etc nursing ratios Um, but i think it's it's a great starting point to direct future research Mm. and think about um how to better look at look at variability and look at the factors that affect variability in terms of icu outcomes across across the globe and and then look at you know the factors that may be contributing that variability and what you can learn from that and what we can learn from other countries that have you know better outcomes and in terms of managing Covid.
2: I'd agree with that. Um, I I, I think you can see the limitations of the data as the limitations of your science but I don't think they are. Unless you conduct an objective rationally uh, uh, well-performed evidence synthesis you're never going to know what the strengths or the limitations of the data set are. Um, I think it only becomes a limitation when you overinterpret them. And I think one of the really great things about your paper is that you don't overinterpret them. You highlight what you've seen um, and then you give all the reasons for caution uh, uh, and, and, and help the reader understand that. I don't so much see that as a limitation of the paper as a limitation of the data. But what are we going to do? Are we going to ignore the data altogether uh, or are we going to try and understand what little we can? And, and I think it's much better if we promote a, a robust and scientific interpretation of the data through a systematic review and meta-analysis than if we just have you know, keyboard warriors commenting on, on it all the time, picking data in an unscientific way, often to support an argument that we might not all agree with. So,
0: And, Rip, R- one of your um, friends that you did, which is one of my favourite ones, was about you know what works and what doesn't for treating COVID in in the critical care environment and do you think that some of the work from recovery and other trials like that might have contributed to some of the trends that uh, Richard and Tim have observed?
2: Um, I certainly hope so I mean I like to think that, that our team have got better at treating COVID I think we're calmer I think we're more focused I think that Uh, maybe it was tim talking at the beginning about some things we did a bit too much of but we're now doing less of um we don't we're not getting distracted by hundreds of miracle cures and we're just focusing on a few so that it feels better to me at the bedside but the thing i always try and explain to people who aren't used to sort of looking at ICU mortality is, you know, for us, our normal is three out of ten patients. Three out of ten patients will not survive intensive care, that's our normal, or six out of 20. If you came along with a single treatment that reduced that from six out of 20 to five out of 20, we would all be absolutely a gold, because that would be the most amazing thing in my career. There has never been a treatment that could reduce our ICU mortality from six out of 20 to five out of 20 of our patients. So we just need to see it in that context. It's very unlikely that we're gonna find a treatment during a pandemic that could reduce mortality to that degree it's much more likely that what we're going to see is that incremental benefit of different approaches, both by doing things that do work, uh, such as dexamethasone and and so on, but also stopping doing things that clearly don't work and don't help and therefore can only do harm. But we need to be a little bit cautious uh, in terms of the wider public and their understanding of what we can actually achieve in ICU that you hear some isolated anecdotal reports of our ICU mortality is 20% and we think we're the best in the country. Well, they probably had a pretty light case mix if they did have an ICU mortality of 20%. That doesn't mean they're not great at what they're doing. It just means that that figure of 20% probably doesn't necessarily reflect a good comparator of what other ICUs are doing.
0: Anyone want to come in on on that? Just about strategies for the treatment of COVID and getting better, and what works and what doesn't, and in relation to some of the findings there. Tim, you look like you want to come in. No,
3: I just agree. I agree
1: with what Rupert says. I, I think that what Rupert says draws attention to an important point, and it's something that we you know we can't measure here, and that it's that potentially systems under strain and under stress perform differently to systems which have maybe have a bit more capacity and we've seen that both within the uk with particularly with regional differences but we've also i think part of that is a reflection of what we're seeing globally here and a part of a part of the effect of a system under strain is probably the ancillary things that go alongside the the dexamethasone and the other specific treatments um the things that the things that comprise routine and standard intensive care um and it may and and that's always going to be difficult to measure in something like this but undoubtedly is a part of it as well uh danny
5: I was just going to say that I think that's a significant part to to me in terms of rationalising what we saw. Because if you look at the ICNARP data, mortality was significantly reduced way before steroids came in. We'd already made the huge gains at that point. So what were we doing? And thinking back to that time, I think initially there was just enormous panic about the sheer numbers of patients we were going to have to deal with. And people were trying to do things following a recipe of what they perceived was, was the right thing to do for a particular disease process. And then as time went on and we just had managed more patients, we realized it wasn't the disease that we thought it was. And, and people then focused on, on doing what they normally did. So I think there was a bit of magical thinking at the beginning where people sort of didn't think to behave how they would normally have behaved had they been rational, but that's just my prejudice.
2: I think that's absolutely right. We, we, we seemed to put aside all we knew
3: for a little while, didn't we?
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I think there's, a, there's perhaps another element which, is, which I think we probably just can't capture in this paper, but I think is important. So um, uh, Christina Pagel, um, who's a professor at UCH, talks very well about, or has written very well about, um, the stresses on healthcare services and as you talked about sort of th- what I took from one of our articles was the sort of three phases of stress one is the way you're under stress you start by working harder to deliver the same quality of care to the same number of patients and then when you're overwhelmed in that regard you deliver a lower quality of of, of care to to the same number of individuals and then- when you're really incredibly stressed, when you're properly overwhelmed, then there's some individuals who don't get any of that care, um, while others are not getting the same, even the same quality of care. And we've we've certainly dipped into the second stage of that at some points in in, in both surges. And um, I guess what what isn't captured so that the mortality rates seem to go down um, in the UK, when well, they did go down in the UK. Uh, towards the end of um, end of May, and then through uh, through to September, and it looked like it was going to be uh, okay into the second surge, which wasn't really the start of the second surge. And then with the second surge, it's, it's risen again. And it's difficult to know to what extent that reflects simply stress on the system, perhaps changes in um, therefore include uh, admission criteria. So there's a nice paper by. Uh, Deutge, which is um, I think the chief statistician at ICNARC, and they looked at, um, at I think it's called trends, trends in, in, in intensive care outcomes in the UK. And they looked at pre pre pre-peak, peak, and post-peak outcomes. And they showed an increase in mortality at the, at the peak of the first surge. Um, and, and a subtle change in um, who was admitted to ITU during 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 the peak? So there was a, an increase in younger patients, a decrease in elder, elderly patients, uh, and more patients with with acute um, kidney injury. Um, so probably they were Everyone was admitting. Um, there was probably a change in in who got into intensive care. I think um, uh, with probably younger because there was a greater number of people. Um, and the system was overburdened, um, the, the, the group of patients became younger and sicker. Um, and it's just difficult, difficult to know whether that's a true observation or whether I'm over-interpreting what was, what was in that paper. But I think perhaps the amongst all the things, amongst all the variables, um, is, the, is, is, is the ability to deliver intensive care to the normal standards is perhaps the most important thing, you know, it, it's important to get things right, whether it's oxygenation, whether it's dexamethasone, whether it's antibiotics, whether it's fluids, whether it's who gets, um, uh, who's fil- you know, when you filter people, et cetera, um, and, uh, anticoagulation. But I think if we can't deliver intensive care, to, to, to close to normal standards then it's likely that that, that that stress will be seen in overall outcomes and it may mean also that the case mix is, is seen so even so even within the ICNOT data so probably within our analysis but also within the data if you're not looking at stable system and you're looking at um, episodes of surge and relative uh, excess of, um, of demand over capacity or capability um, then within that data there may be variations in, in mortality over that time period and so even within one country um, the issues of variation in case mix um, may apply for instance within the ICNARC data and we've taken that as one set of data but even within that data, Maybe the, the, the possibility of, 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 of episodic variation in outcomes during that time within the likelihood.
0: Does anyone want to come in
3: on that?
4: No, I think, uh, Mike, I think, Tim, I, I, there may be these variants, but just going back to the ideas of stresses and not delivering uh, the best care possible, I think uh, we are now then perhaps, as we see a plateau in mortality, back at risk of. Um, what did you call it, Danny? Magic magic thinking. thinking? Uh people thinking. Yeah, we're backing this potential. I, I, I mean, anecdotally, we are hearing people reaching for um, unevidence-based treatments again. Um, obviously, everyone is giving methylpred to themselves as they walk out the door to make sure they don't get um, injecting bleach? Are we doing that? I can't remember which evidence based treatment we're going for now. But we are hearing this again now in the second wave, that there isn't a need to do trials. There isn't a need to do any of these things. We should just give these treatments um, because we're not getting the mortality benefits that we're expecting to get. And I think that's a real danger that we're seeing in the second wave um, as we stretch. And perhaps, Tim, as you're saying, this is a a sign of the stretch and strain that we're feeling.
0: Okay. Um, so let's fast forward. Uh, say six months or so. So what, what's the next updated uh, meta-analysis going to look like? Um, start, start with you, Mandy.
6: I was hoping you'd mention something about where do we go from here. <laughs> yeah. um, I think, you know, as I said before, we need to, um, I think within the UK, um, you know, I think the data is going to show variability from different hospitals to different hospitals and regional variations. And I think that's an interesting point for us to look at uh, within the UK, and then to do a similar thing on a UK, uh, on a worldwide basis, to look, you know, to redefine and look at some of those uh, limitations that were mentioned in this paper, and see if we can even out um, um, some of that to work out, you know, which factors really correlated with outcomes on a global level. Um, but one thing that I was thinking when I was reading this paper is, I, thought, you know, I'm sure we all appreciate that, you know, um, a good outcome from a good outcome from ICU is not only just being alive. Um, I think a good outcome from ICU is a good functional outcome and a good cognitive outcome. And I think that's what's important if you ask, talk to patients about, you know, when you want to leave ITU or when you want to leave hospital, what's a good outcome for you? Um, And a lot of them will talk about not only being alive, but being alive and well um, and being able to interact. So I think, you know, maybe some work could go into looking at some functional outcomes. Um, You know, it, it, it reminds me a little bit about some of the work that's been done into decompressive craniectomies. They reduce your mortality, but they don't necessarily improve your morbidity. Um, and maybe we've got to look a bit a bit at you know look at um look at that within some of this data to look at okay you know you know mortality may be x y and z but what about what about you know functional outcomes what about cognitive outcomes i'm not sure what the panel think about that
0: Yeah, i open that up Lots of nodding heads. I think it's
2: absolutely right. It's just finding the data is the, is the challenge, isn't it? Um, but, uh, it would be fascinating to understand whether both mortality and functional outcomes have changed and, and how they relate. Um, for exactly I think the example you give of craniectomy is a really good one, Andy, um, how those two things don't necessarily uh, follow a, a fixed ratio um, and we kind of, I think, sometimes we assume they do, but that's not necessarily the case, is it?
4: I think that might be beyond even Richard. Richard, would you agree with that? Because I think they don't exist. I'd be, I'd want to see, if possible, actually you focusing more, on, and the next one perhaps to focus more on the inter, inter, international differences, and perhaps taking a wider view, looking at some of the WHO data and perhaps then allowing us to see the discrepancies we talked about earlier on of inter-country differences where things should be the same but aren't, such as ourselves in the Netherlands or ourselves in Taiwan, for example.
1: Yeah, um, I think uh, I, I agree with with, uh, with both points, really. We've, we've focused on that one outcome uh, because it hopefully is consistently and um, concretely reported. But certainly, it doesn't tell you anything about the quality of that, of that survival. Um, but as, as Zudin says, the availability of that outcome data, not, not just on the topic of COVID-19, but more broadly, is, is very limited. Though increasingly, we are seeing more functional and patient-centered outcomes being included in research. It, it definitely still is lacking on the whole. Um, but I, I agree that even if you know, even if we re- repeated the analysis today, there would be new countries involved. Um, new registries have published in the intervening time, and certainly it would add to that global picture. Um, and it would be interesting. There's um, as well as things that have already come out. There's a um, a first report from. The african covid-19 outcome critical care outcome study which is in preprint at the moment i think um so certainly we'll we'll get a richer picture the the analyses themselves will be you know will be the same in terms of what we can and can't say and what we can and can't do but certainly it'll it'll spark more questions and it might be some more hypothesis generating work raising these interest, interesting issues that are worthy of further exploration and and trying to maximise the learning we can from each other in what is a
3: global health situation. I, I think that um, Andy's point is really well made about um, the importance of the quality of outcome, not just survival or death. Um, and I think Zudin mentioned Isrik um, uh, a bit early, earlier. And one of the reasons that a lot of the um, research that was done well in this pandemic was done well was because it was pre-prepared, it was sitting on a shelf somewhere waiting to be pulled off when the pandemic happened and it was set up uh, in sort of 2014 or something like that but waiting for the pandemic to occur and that preparedness in terms of research readiness um, I think was, has been really important in the early stages of the pandemic, understanding the disease um, and enabling things like recovery probably to get set up. Um, and In a way, we shouldn't be waiting for the data. We shouldn't be saying, well, the data isn't there for us to analyze about Um, quality outcomes. We should be saying, if you're going to report on this topic, you need to decide the study in this way. So we need to know what your healthcare system is like, what you mean by intensive care, define the severity of illness of the patients, define what your interventions and um, organ support systems are. and and have strictly agreed definition for outcomes. And there's been a lot of work done by, I mean, Rupert's been central to some of it, um, the compact um, work doing this and standardizing outcomes in perioptic medicine. And um, if it isn't already happening, then it would be a really useful uh, thing to happen. It's gonna take several years but to take that forward and that would enable much more robust perhaps more complicated but more robust analyses of of data sets and useful comparisons um, in the future because there will be um, reasons to analyze outcomes across uh, different localities and different settings in the future and and one of the major failings or major difficulties that we had was the absence of standardized data so we just couldn't we couldn't we, we, we couldn't compare and um, adjust for, for different um, patient sets or treatments or, or, or measure different outcomes.
2: I that last point is just really important, Tim, that it's not just the outcomes that matter in these analyses, these trials, it's actually the covariates, the, the things that we risk adjust by. Now, it's obvious that we catch age and gender, sex in, uh, in, in most studies, but for example, different systems for defining ethnicity have caused some problems in comparing different types of study during the pandemic. So it'd be really nice to see anything that we did on outcome sets. I think it's a really good suggestion. Uh, It would be great to see that include covariates for risk adjustment as well and get those standardised too.
0: Uh, Any other comments um, on on that point uh, before we move on to... Last couple of questions. Um, I've, I've got a real technical question here for, for Richard, uh, probably. Um, so in, in the paper you talk about uh, registry and non-registry studies. Um, perhaps some of the v- viewers and readers might um, like to know what the difference is between those and why it's important for your particular paper.
1: Um, yeah, well, we so as we've as we've alluded to in the discussion, some of the included papers are registries. Um, from the UK, the Netherlands, Germany, and a, a regional registry from Australia. And in, it's worth mentioning, I think, that in preparing to do the analysis, we did contact intensive care societies and national organisations and registries to actually go looking for any more registry data that we hadn't found or that perhaps wasn't easily available in the English language at our first pass. Um, so that we could include both registries and and the kind of published studies and observational case series, we did find that those registries that we had had a lower reported mortality rate than the non-registry studies. And some of those points we may well have alluded to already in terms of the health systems that they've come from. Um, but, But one other point, which is a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a technical point about the whole analysis is that in terms of looking at longitudinal outcomes and how things have changed over time, because of an absence of patient-level data, we've only been able to represent every included study as one single time point, which we've had to take as a as a proxy of the, the whole time series of their admissions. So all of the registries that are in there cover the whole, basically cover the whole span of the pandemic. Um, usually they started recording cases back in March. So they go from March right up to October. Whereas the individual studies tend to be shorter snapshots of time. But because we don't know when all of the individual admissions happen, we can only look at either the day they were published, the date the last patient was recruited or how long their longest patient follow-up was. We, we couldn't even look at the median admission date because we just those those data just weren't available um so that is one definite difference methodologically between the registries and all of the other studies um but but certainly most mostly it's points that have already been touched on where the registries came from perhaps what the broader point that these systems have registries in place that are doing this regular reporting, perhaps what that says more broadly about the, the setup and the way intensive care works in those areas. But partly as well, there will be more registries now, and there have been more registry reports since um, since this has been put together. Um, and I think one of the take-homes for us was that the registries have been a really valuable resource when trying to look at this. I mean, in particular, the reports that ICNARC have been putting out on a weekly basis. I know yeah. anecdotally, we've all probably been looking at those on a regular basis. Um, they've been increasing the depth of analysis that are included in those. And those, those have been really helpful for us to learn as we go along. And I think we'd encourage, where it's possible, we'd encourage more publication and dissemination of registry data, but also tying into the broader point that's already been made, it would be nice if registries could go some way to standardizing what they report. And maybe those are maybe those organizations could be the ones that take a lead on that um, in terms of standardizing, this is what we're gonna collect and this is how it's gonna be reported to start encouraging that broader consensus and comparison. Suddenly, so you look like you wanted to come in
0: there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and anyone, anyone else want to mention anything on that? Um...
2: I think um, from having done a bit of work with ICNARC, um, they have, their big problem, of course, is that they've got staff in every NHS hospital intensive care unit in the country collecting data. And it's a major logistical exercise every time they change a single data point. Mm-hmm. So I, I can sort of picture them with their heads and in, face in their hands right now, thinking, oh, my God, how on earth would we standardise across the world if we can't even standardise in the UK without long discussions? But maybe it's come to that. You know, maybe it is that important now, that, that if we're looking at issues, as him alluded to, global health security
4: maybe it's become that important. So actually, we so as Rupert said, we've also had other discussions with knock about, say, using our post-intensive care screening tool. Uh, and Kathy Rowan's point is, yes, well, I think that'll be great in a couple of years' time once your data are stable in this country. We could certainly talk about it. So not only are there a lack of agreement about what tools to, to put in, data then have to be stable for years before something that's mature like ICNARC will even consider it. So it will be years before we can even, in this country, collect functional data as routine. And then once you spread that out internationally, I don't know how long that will take.
2: I think it's worth pointing out, though, um, what we're likely to see coming is is not a further series of massive waves, at least I hope not that we've had in in the spring and now in the winter, it's probably most likely that COVID will become an endemic disease like influenza, but probably worse, and that we have, in the UK at least, winter corona crises instead of winter flu crises. Um, And we know that those winter flu crises are a major challenge for the NHS and that they take a big logistical response. It's just tiny compared to what we've just been doing, but but it's still a big logistical response uh, uh, in normal times. And so the understanding that we get from Richard's work and how we treat coronavirus moving forward is incredibly important. So I think it, it is actually still really necessary that we do these things, because coronavirus is a disease that's here to stay now. Yeah, the only virus we've eradicated is smallpox. We've still got polio, we've still got measles, mumps, rubella, and so on. And we've now got coronavirus. So we need to think of how we get good at treating these diseases in the long term as well as the short term.
0: I guess, um, Richard, one, one final question before we all sort of go around and make closing remarks is... Um, um, one of the things that's different now is is the vaccine. Uh, and um, we've obviously made a lot of um, d- d- positive steps in the UK, but do you think that the variations around the globe are, are only going to increase if, unless we have some sort of globally managed vaccine strategy? Uh, we're already seeing the emergence of variants and, and and various other issues with the you know, spread in populations. And um, although we, you know, who say no one's safe until we're all safe?
1: Uh, do you think that's going to change the global picture? I think there's certainly potential for that, yes, and um, I think it is something that we'll start to see in the absence of a of a globally managed program. But what we might also see is that, as a result of differential vaccination, the the case mix globally changes as well. And the case mix in in any given country changes over time as vaccination. Is targeted to different sectors of the population so yeah i think it will be it will be interesting and maybe in an ideal world vaccination is another of the covariates that would be included in one of these kind of analyses um but again that just adds another level of complexity because so it's not just about numbers of vaccines it's about it's about take up. It's about the, the groups of the population that are being vaccinated. So yeah, it's it's um, it will change the picture.
0: Anyone else? Um, uh, Tim, I know you've got something coming uh, on vaccines in in the near future, hopefully. But so I don't want to spend too much time talking about that. But has anyone got any other points about how vaccines are going to? Um, change things and what they expect might happen going forward?
3: Uh, the only thing I'd say, perhaps a trail for next week perhaps, but um, I think vaccines are going will have an impact on um, on mortality far more quickly than they'll have an impact, that's in the UK, far more quickly than they'll have an impact um, on hospital admissions or IT admissions, and I think uh, those will continue up for... Several weeks or even months are uh, longer than, than the, the high mortality rates. Um, remembering that, of course, only 10% of deaths that, are, that have occurred from COVID in the UK have occurred in ITU throughout the pandemic, and that figures stay fairly stable, somewhere of between 9 and 11%. Um, and more broadly, vaccination is not a national issue, it's a, it's a global issue. Um, there's no point in efficiently vaccinating vaccinating the whole UK if um, uh, other countries aren't vaccinated and then a a strain which is not anymore more um, uh, replicating but is also um, doesn't is not captured or eliminated by the vaccine by the vaccines by our our immunity comes from another country because we'll be starting again so um, it's always important when talking about vaccines to remember that it's a that it's genuinely a global issue not a not not a national one i think you know, i would like to pay tribute to to all the people who have contributed to the research that that, that rich has, has um, studied because i think you know, it's astonishing that right from the start you know within weeks of the pandemic started when um, healthcare systems in China were completely, were becoming overwhelmed. The people were able to produce, the researchers were able to produce pretty high quality um, uh, data and research that was managed in a timely fashion. There have been no retractions in the, in the area that we've looked at um, and provided with information about what was happening in ITU. For instance, that about a quarter of patients were, were required. And renal replacement therapy if we if we looked um, and and i think a lot of that information that came from china that came from italy and then has um spread across the globe um, you know it's a real tribute to people that they've been able to produce that information whether it be through individual researchers in in their units or um all the people contributing to ICNARC and the fabulous work that's been done by ICNARC um, and all all the individuals in every hospital that contribute to that in the in in the UK um, including the Scottish Registry so I I I do think it's really important to to pay tribute to the value you know people say science is going to get us out of this um, and you know this uh, this particular paper is not going to get us out of it. But I think the contributions that, that, that researchers have made uh, to providing information in a timely fashion and journals um, uh, throughout the pandemic is, is just really important to remember.
0: Yeah, and thank, thank you to you all f- uh, for your time today as well in helping to contextualise the paper from Richard and Tim. Uh, I think that's really useful to uh, remember the paper's a couple of days old and, and we've been able to go through all, all the topics here together one by one so that's been really useful for the readers no doubt um to help understand that paper a bit better which is a, a truly extraordinary amount of work so congratulations to Richard on that because it's really really is a great paper not just one but you know to do to do it again a second time is absolutely incredible uh, so yeah thank you very much everyone uh and we hope you've enjoyed that we will turn this broadcast into a podcast at some point in the future so that I'll be available on iTunes and and everywhere else. Uh, And um, this broadcast will be available forever as well on uh, on Periscope and also on Twitter. Uh, So thank you very much, everyone. Uh, Do remember the paper is available to read and download completely for free. Uh, So do go away, have a look, uh, send us your letters, uh, send us your tweets, send us your comments, uh, and hopefully um, uh, we can get some more discussion going uh, about it over on Twitter afterwards. So thank you very much, everyone, and goodbye. The Anesthesia Podcast.